Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have back with me today the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another Key Words episode. This is episode number six, uh, and it is uh, we're going to cover supraclavicular nerve blocks and benzodiazepines. So, uh, Dr. Isaac, thank you for coming back to the show. Oh, you're welcome. So, if you remember on the last podcast, we covered the interscalene brachial plexus nerve block. Uh, and that comes from the ABA keyword. And just bear with me because it goes down the list. So it's the ABA keyword, anatomy, regional anesthesia, main nerve blocks, extremities, brachial plexus. And of those, there are four, interscalene, supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary. We did the interscalene by itself because it's the most heavily tested. It's been tested every year since 2011, so you're kind of guaranteed to see a question about interscalene. The other ones, the supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary block are definitely tested, but not to the same extent, so we're going to bundle them together here. The supraclavicular block was tested in 2013, 2016, and 2018. And it was actually ultrasound anatomy. So unfortunately, I can't show you a picture. And I do really encourage you to look at ultrasounds of these because more and more the regional blocks are going to ultrasound images. You still still see questions that are not visually based, but more than likely you're going to see an ultrasound picture there. And if you look at the ultra the upper extremity nerve block uh, podcast I did with doctors uh, Hassan Reyes and um, Kara Segna, on the show notes for that episode, we have images nice. of all of yeah. these. So, so you, you can, can check yeah, that out. And pull them up while you're listening to this. And then interestingly enough, the infraclavicular block has not been tested in the last 10 years in any way. I don't know why. I guess it's a less interest, less things mm. to test, less complications, less, less nerves being missed. It is a block that it is still being done. They do it at baby frequently, especially for like fistulas, but not really testing it. And then the axillary block, again, they test ultrasound anatomy and that was in 2016 and 2019, but they've also tested block limitations and complications. That was in 2009 and 2010 and then median nerve rescue block. So that was tested in 2010, 2011. So they are tested also, um, but infraclavicular, no love there. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I will say, I mean, there's a lot of variation from institution to institution in terms of how what is actually done for certain procedures. Uh, When I was a resident, we did a ton of axillary nerve blocks. uh, And here at Hopkins, we hardly do any. Did you learn how to use do it with ultrasound? Yes. Because I did it. And it was like, you really want me to put the needle through this artery? That's what you want me to do? I remember hearing that that's how it used to be <laughs> yeah. done and being shocked. No, it was terrifying. I'm like, let me, just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I so, was shocked to hear that. Right. That is not how I learned. <laughs> yeah. So no more. But uh, so like I said, we're going to talk about supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary brachial plexus blocks. I just want to do a quick, like one sentence review on the interscaling block. So the interscaling block is ideal for orthopedic and vascular procedures performed on the shoulder and upper arm, but a very poor choice for the forearm and hand surgery, and the ulnar nerve is commonly spared, and that's a question you see time and time again. Okay, so for the supraclavicular block, I've done it by key points. So we're going to go key point and the questions, key point questions. So key point one. So in talking to one of our regional faculty today and asking him some questions about these blocks, because I don't really do many anymore. Right. Uh, the supraclavicular block is like the spinal of the arm. And I love that hmm. analogy because he says you provide anesthesia to the entire upper extremity with one single injection of local. So it's kind of the powerhouse block of the brachial plexus blocks. And the approach is carried out at a point where the plexus is reduced to its fewest component parts. So you're actually blocking the trunks, the superior, middle, and inferior trunks as they pass under the clavicle and over the first rib. So first question, it's which section of the brachial plexus is blocked with a supraclavicular block? 
So A, roots and trunks. B, trunks and divisions. C, chords. D, branches. Right. So as you said, uh, this is really the trunks and you have kind of trunks into divisions or roots into trunks is probably going to be the um, the choice. Uh, the, you have the two of those choices out there. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it's, both have trunks in yeah. them. But if we're going from top to bottom, then we would probably think the inner scaling would be that top one roots right. into trunks and then trunks into divisions would be super curvature. Right. So that's exactly right. So if you go kind of top down, the inner scaling is going to be roots and trunks. And then the supercovicular will be trunks divisions. Infraclavicular will be chords. And axillary will be branches. And you see very similar questions about like what part of the brachial plexus does the axillary block, block. And that would be branches. Right. Okay. Uh, so which portion of the upper extremity is not innervated by the brachial plexus? So A, posterior medial portion of the arm, B, elbow, C, lateral portion of the forearm, and D, medial portion of the forearm. All right. So I'm guessing what they're getting at there is the intercostal brachial nerve. I will be honest with you that I don't have a great idea in my head of exactly what part of the arm that covers. I, I know it's not part of the brachial plexus, and that's the one that's always asked about, but... Um, why don't you tell me, Jillian, what part of the arm does that cover? Yeah, so the arm receives sensory innervation from the brachial plexus, except for the shoulder and the posterior medial aspect of the arm, which is supplied by the intercostal brachial. So no matter what approach you use, whether you're going intrascalene, supercovicular, axillary, you always have to think about the intercostal brachial and that portion of like the posterior medial aspect of the arm, which isn't going to be covered sens- uh, sensory-wise. Which leads us to the next question, which is or the next key point, which is even though it's called like the spinal of the arm, the supraclavicular won't block the intercostal brachial nerve, and sometimes you're going to need a supplemental block. So here's a question regarding that, uh, and this is common. This comes up year after year. A 40-year-old man who is scheduled to undergo repair of a tendon laceration of the left hand has complete anesthesia in the median, radial, radial and ulnar nerve distributions after a supraclavicular block. Two hours of tourniquet inflation are required for completion of the procedure. The most appropriate next st- step is an additional block of which are the following. So A, axillary nerve, B, intercostal brachial nerve, C, lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve, D, muscular cutaneous nerve, and E, stellate ganglion. Right, and that's where the interbra- uh, intercostal brachial nerve comes in, uh, and this, I think, is where you see it a lot with that tourniquet. Tourniquet, question. exactly. And in speaking with the regional faculty today, that's what they told me, that they'll commonly do this as a supplemental block if you're going to have a, tournament, a tourniquet on that right. upper arm. All right, so this is a very similar question. A patient receives 1.5% bupivacaine, 40 ml, and epi 1 to 200,000 for a supraclavicular brachial plexus block for a reduction of a forearm fracture. The tourniquet is inflated to 300 millimeters of mercury. 45 minutes later, the patient has pain that radiates to the posterior medial elbow. Which of the following nerves is not adequately blocked? A, intercostal brachial, B, median, C, musculocutaneous, D, ulnar, E, radial. And as you said, this is a similar question dealing with tourniquet pain. Exactly. So, so when you see nerve block, tourniquet, think intercostal brachial. Put those words together in your head. So key point number three is that an important landmark of the subclavian artery, which you can actually sometimes feel, which you better believe I tried to feel it on myself today. <laughs> uh, um, and the common ultrasound picture is going to show the subclavian artery, the first rib, and the brachial plexus. And the nerves of the brachial plexus lie in a cephalo-posterior relationship to the artery at this level. So in the classic approach, and by classic I mean not ultrasound approach, the incidence of pneumothorax is as high as 7%. So depending on who's doing the block and 
um, degree of experience. It's anywhere from 0.5% but up to 7% right. for the learners. So ultrasound has almost eliminated the risk of a pneumothorax, but it hasn't diminished it to zero. It's still a known major complication of the supraclavicular block. So here's a question that will demonstrate this key point. A 69-year-old man with a history of diabetes and chronic renal failure is to undergo placement of a dialysis fistula. During needle manipulation for a supraclavicular brachial plexus block, the patient begins to cough and complain of chest pain and shortness of breath. The most likely explanation is angina A, B, pneumothorax, C, phrenic nerve injury, D, intravascular injection of local anesthetic. So I think since you just talked about it and also, uh, again, knowing this is a complication, probably pneumothorax is going to be our most likely. And I think the key here is also it says during needle manipulation and it doesn't say with ultrasound. So they're moving that needle around. There's no ultrasound and he has a cough and chest pain, shortness of breath. Uh, so that leads us to the fourth key point of the supraclavicular nerve blocks is that the phrenic nerve is actually blocked in up to 60% of patients. So you really want to think about think twice about blocking patients that if they did get a pneumothorax or a phrenic nerve block, it would result in significant dyspnea or respiratory distress, so like severe COPD, uh, maybe fibrosis, or even morbid obesity. So here's a question related to that. So a 46-year-old obese man underwent an ultrasound-guided left-sided supraclavicular block in preparation for decompression of Guyon's canal for ulnar mononeuropathy at the wrist. 20 minutes later, the patient experienced anxiety and acute onset dyspnea. A chest x-ray revealed elevation of the left hemidiaphragm. What is the most likely explanation? So it's similar answer choices. A, angina. B, pneumothorax. C, iatrogenic phrenic nerve palsy. D, intravascular rejection of local anesthetic. Right. So anytime you see that elevated hemidiaphragm, especially in the setting of a procedure like this that can cause um, phrenic nerve injury or phrenic nerve um, uh, paralysis, that's a good thing to think about. I think the tricky thing would be differentiating between a pneumothorax and a phrenic nerve block. In my mind, they'd have to give you some clues, and it have to be like the first question they, was needle manipulation, no ultrasound, and almost immediately. Uh, whereas in the second question, you know, it had, took a few minutes for the block to set up, right. and then they right. gave you a chest X-ray right. because you can't just listen because you'd have decreased breath sounds in both instances. So they'd have to be a way to distinguish between the two. Yeah, I think if they give you elevated hemidiaphragm, that's a giveaway. Right. You shouldn't have that in a pneumothorax, and probably absence of breath sounds, you wouldn't. I mean, I guess lower, lower, lower yeah. would be hard. But if that they would said be hard upper. Too, right? upper lobe or anterior. But it'd have to be clear. They'd have to have a way to make it clear between the two. Yeah. Okay. They certainly couldn't just say dyspnea. That would not be. Right. Exactly. You can't just say shortness of breath and that you couldn't really differentiate between the two. So this is one last question about supraclavicular nerve blocks, and it's not actually specific to a supraclavicular nerve block, but I like it because it's in the answer choices and it's a question that comes up again year after year. So the plasma concentration of equal doses of a local anesthetic is highest when the site of administration is A, supraclavicular brachial plexus, B, caudal, C, intercostal, D, lumbar, epidural, E, subcutaneous. Yeah, so it's always intercostal. That's the most, um, the highest absorbance. Right. And sometimes they'll ask this question highest to lowest. So yeah. just to give you that order, because they'll ask it, it's intercostal, then caudal, then epidural, then brachial plexus, then sciatic femoral, and subcutaneous is last. And they'll, sometimes they'll ask you to order it that direction too. Yeah. Yeah. So key points for a supraclavicular nerve block, you're blocking the trunks of the brachial plexus as they pass under the clavicle, over the first rib. Intercostal brachial is not blocked. You may need a supplemental block, especially if you're using a tourniquet. Pneumothorax is the most dangerous complication. There's a much higher incidence without ultrasound use. Phrenic nerve block occurs in up to 60% of patients, so be wary in patients with COPD, respiratory disease, and morbid obesity.
Sounds good. Okay. So infraclavicular nerve block, I got nothing. I searched through every question bank that I found, and I couldn't find any. And like I said, uh, according to open anesthesia, they actually haven't tested it in 10 years. So we're just going to let that sit and move on. So the next one is axillary nerve block. Um, the nerves targeted for the axillary block course distally with the axillary artery and vein along the humerus from the apex of the axilla. It's really good for surgery distal to the elbow. So your AV fistulas, colleagues fractures, diputrains, contracture release, wrist fusion, and ORIF. I know we use this at Bayview, which is our sister hospital, like all the time, multiple times a day. So key point one, the ulnar, median, and radial nerves are the primary target. So you're targeting the branches, kind of going back to that first question that mm-hmm. we had. So you're going for the branches, which means that you could actually miss any of them if it doesn't spread in that like classic U-shaped spread. Uh, and the musculocutaneous nerve often leaves the, plex- the plexus proximal to this point. And sometimes you're going to need a separate blockade of the musculocutaneous nerve, which is sensory to the lateral aspect of the forearm. Uh, and again, it's not going to get your intercostal brachial. So intercostal brachial is not unique to any of your blocks. You're going to miss it for everything that's coming off the brachial plexus, but musculocutaneous tends to be unique to axillary. Missing the ulnar is unique to interscalene. Um, so that's a really a common tested one too. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the ultrasound image, it shows the axillary artery surrounded by the median ulnar and radial nerves. Sometimes you can actually see the coracobrachialis muscle and even the musculocutaneous, but they're usually like off to the side. So it's yep. like that artery with the three nerves around it is like the classic classic image. Right. Okay. So it's really important when you're doing questions about the axillary block to pay attention to the information they're giving you because, again, we make associations. It's really natural, and I think you think axillary, and you go right for musculocutaneous, and it's not always the correct answer. So after an axillary brachial plexus block, the patient feels pain when the surgeon clips the skin over the thin or eminence. The most likely cause is inadequate anesthesia in the distribution of the, and I'm laughing because Jed's putting his hand out, looking down at his hand, A, intercostal brachial nerve, B, median nerve, C, musculocutaneous nerve, D, radial nerve, E, ulnar nerve. Right. So I, I am looking down at my hand uh, <laughs> yeah. and going back I to medical school. Right? So the median nerve does the yeah. uh, thenar. Right? Exactly. So again, pay attention because you want to say musculocutaneous, but that would have to be lateral forearm. Okay. So another one in a very similar vein. During axillary block of the brachial plexus, which nerve is most likely to be encountered if the needle is inserted through the posterior wall of the artery? A, intercostal brachial, B, median, C, musculocutaneous, D, radial. So on the far side is going to be the radial. Yeah. And that's just one of those you kind of just have to memorize. It It helps to have done these blocks because then you can kind of picture what you're talking. Especially when you had to do it when you went through the artery. Right. Actually, it's probably easier if you've done an ultrasound because then you you actually can see it. Right. And actually in talking to my colleague, he said one of the reasons why sometimes they'll do an infraclavicular over an axillary is it's sometimes hard to get the ultrasound images of the axillary depending on body habitus. Mm, Interesting. So 20 minutes after an axillary block, the patient reports feeling over the back of the hand. So examination shows normal sensation over the lateral aspect of the dorsum of the hand and the dorsal base of the thumb and index finger. Supplementary anesthesia of this area can be provided by blocking which of the following nerves. So ulnar A, B, musculocutaneous, C, median, D, radial, E, intercostal brachial. So the back of the hand is innervated by the radial nerve. Yeah. So like I said, when you're doing an axillary nerve block, if you don't get good spread, you can miss any of these nerves. And that's a fair game. And I think a median nerve rescue block was also a common question that you saw uh, according to open anesthesia. So another one is the patient undergoes axillary block for placement of an AV shunt in the forearm. Blockade of the musculocutaneous nerve is not achieved. Injection of a local anesthesia 
anesthetic at which of the following sites will provide the required sensory block? A, between the tendon of the palmaris longus and flexor carpi radialis. B, body of coracobrachialis muscle. C, medial to the brachial artery at the elbow. D, proximal to the medial epicondyle against the medial surface of the humerus. E, superficial to the pulse of the axillary artery. And you mentioned earlier that the um, MCN is often found near the body of the coracobrachialis muscles. Did I mention that? Yeah. <laughs> Good, go me. All right. Yeah. So exactly. It's the body of the coracobrachialis. So if you need to do a supplementary block, that's how you, how you would approach it. So during surgery of the forearm under axillary block, a patient has pain in the lateral aspect of the forearm and responds by flexing the elbow. The most likely cause is an inadequate block of which of the following nerves? A, axillary, B, intercostobrachial, C, musculocutaneous, D, radial, E, ulnar. And so as we said, the musculocutaneous nerve does that uh, portion. Exactly. So it's lateral aspect sensory and then motor is like flexion at the elbow. So I think this is the last question. I know there's a ton, but you won't forget it. Yeah. The muscular action most likely to remain intact following an axillary brachial plexus block is A, flexion at the elbow, B, extension at the wrist, C, flexion of digits 3, 4, and 5, D, extension of digits 1, 2, and 3, E, extension at the elbow. Right. So flexion at the elbow, as you just said, right. uh, you're most likely in an axillary nerve block to miss the uh, musculocutaneous nerve, and that nerve does flexion of the elbow. Right. So it's... Package it together, musculocutaneous nerve, which is by the body of the coracobrachialis. It's sensory to the lateral forearm, and its muscular action is flexion at the elbow. So key points in reviewing the axillary nerve block, uh, it blocks the branches, so the radial, median, and ulnar nerve, so you can miss any of them. It almost always spares the musculocutaneous nerve, which is lateral sensation of the forearm, motor function is flexion at the elbow. And if you're going to do a block of the musculocutaneous, you do it at the body of the coracobrachialis. Awesome. All right. Excellent review. And now shall we turn to benzos? Oh, yes. Benzodiazepines, which I have to say, when I was a resident, we used midazolam like water. Yeah. In fact, we called it two and two, which was two ml of fentanyl, two ml of Versed, so two milligrams, 100 micrograms. And like pretty much anyone who walked into an operating got two and two, yep. right? Here, we're much more conservative, I feel, with our use yeah. of benzodiazepines, but I love them. Yeah, I think I think this has been a change that we've seen over the past maybe five years. As and I think it's come from the ICU literature about delirium from benzos. Um, even though there haven't been a lot, uh, there's not a lot of data looking at whether, uh, in fact, there may be none looking at whether, you know, a two milligram dose of Versed preoperatively. Uh, increases the risk of delirium postoperatively. I think we just uh, assume that since in the ICU we worry about benzodiazepines causing delirium, that in general we should avoid it. That's where I think this has come from. Got it. I also wonder as we go to like a opioid sparing techniques if they'll come more back into favor, but we digress. Yes. So, <laughs> so according to the ABA, this is what they want you to know to be a very good, competent anesthesiologist. So for benzodiazepines, mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics and dynamics, metabolism and excretion, effect on circulation, effect on respiration, effect on other organs, side effects and toxicity, indications, contraindications, and antagonism. So if you're looking at what the board is actually testing, they're testing respiratory effects that was tested in 08 and 2015 as muscle relaxants, which I learned something. I've never used them in that capacity in 2014. Uh, the pediatric oral dosage, so they actually like how you dose it in 2016. Flumazenil comes up all the time. I found 2013, but I'm fairly certain it's been tested more frequently than that. And then the metabolism of these drugs came up in 2015. 
So key point one, we're going to go through indications for these. So we give them to produce anxiolysis, amnesia as a sedative, for hypno- as a hypnotic, as an anticonvulsant. And then you can actually give them to relieve skeletal muscle spasticity and its pain in a variety of neuro disorders, including stroke and spinal cord injury. Yeah. And we actually give it in the ICU. One of the few times we use benzos uh, is for uh, muscle spasms. Yeah, and that was tested in 2014, and I haven't been able to find a sample question, but I wanted to put it out there as a key point because it sounds like they're testing that more and more now. And again, the most common uses are pre-medications, anxiolysis, and even like MAC cases, sedation cases. So here's a sample question for that key point. Three hours prior to induction of anesthesia for elective laparotomy, a 40-kilogram 8-year-old boy is anxious and clings to his parents. Which of the following pre-anesthetic medications is most appropriate? A, oral ketamine, B, oral midazolam, C, rectal methohexatol, D, intramuscular droperidol, E, intramuscular intramuscular promethazine. Right. So you certainly, if, if you didn't know, you'd say, all right, well, I am is painful. Right. right? And, and I have a seven-year-old. Good luck with right. that. And rectal, <laughs> yeah. right? So we're yeah, going right. to exactly. right. stay away from rectal. We're going to stay away from intramuscular uh, if we have the choice here. Um, so it really leaves you just oral ketamine or oral midazolam. And, uh, you know, again, here you'd have to know that we use oral midazolam quite a lot. Then it works well for that um, for that indication. Yeah, and if they ask you the dosing, it's 0.5 milligram per kilogram PO. So for a 40 kilogram boy, that would be 20 milligrams. And at Columbia, we used to mix it with Tylenol. So we'd do a mix mm. of Tylenol and midazolam and have them drink it, and almost every kid got a pre-med. Yeah, interesting. I know that um, it is up – There's it's like a 0.5 mix per kg up to a max of something, and I don't do kids anymore. I think anymore. it's 0.7. No, I mean a oh, total dose max, and I it might be, maybe it is twenty, maybe it's it could be less than that, maybe I don't remember, um, but I would say make sure right. that you, yes, if you're right. if you're clinically thinking about using this, um, then check with your local uh, right. peds folks. If you yeah. have like a two hundred kilogram kid, right. And right? Hopefully that will never happen. But, yeah. Okay. So the other uh, key point is actually the metabolism. Lots of questions about metabolism of these drugs. So benzodiazepines undergo hepatic metabolism, and it's a little bit different for each of the drugs. So diazepam undergoes oxidative metabolism in the liver, and I remember that by like DOM. So DOM, diazepam, oxidative metabolism in liver, Mm. and it has active metabolites. And that's key and that's unique to diazepam, and they like to ask about that. So the active metabolites can actually prolong its uh, sedative effects. And because of its metabolism, drugs that inhibit the oxidative metabolism of of diazepam include cimetidine. So those that shut down like metabolism in the liver can affect diazepam. Interestingly enough, not the other ones, but diazepam uniquely. And severe liver disease can also reduce the hepatic clearance, so prolonging half-life. So lorazepam is actually directly conjugated to glucuronic acid, and I remember log, lorazepam, glucuronic acid, to form a pharmacologically inactive metabolite. And then midazolam actually also undergoes oxidation by hepatic enzymes, different than diazepam, interestingly enough. Uh, The primary one is one hydro hydroxymethylmidazolam, which does have mild CNS depressant effects. Uh, they say in like healthy people, it's almost not noticeable, mm-hmm. but you're going to see it more in sicker people, which might be what you're talking about in the ICU, that the metabolite can cause some issues in sicker people. And the hepatic clearance rate of midazolam is five times greater than lorazepam and 10 times greater than diazepam. 
So here are some sample questions that you're going to have regarding metabolism. Compared with midazolam, diazepam has which of the following characteristics? A, greater solubility in water. B, shorter beta half-life. C, more potent ventilatory depressant effect. D, lower risk for thrombophobitis. E, a pharmacologically active metabolite. Right. And so as we said, it does have a pharmacologically active metabolite. Um, so, you know, even if you didn't know the other ones, right. probably go with that. And that's a big one. And they ask that frequently about diazepam that it has uh, active half, uh, active metabolites. And that's why sometimes you get a longer depressant effect than you would expect with it. In terms of the other ones, it actually has a longer half-life. I think the solubility in water is the same. It has very similar like ventilatory depressant effects. And I don't know about thrombophlebitis. That's just a distractor answer, right. I think. Okay. Which of the following statements concerning diazepam is true? A, absorption is more predictable after intramuscular administration than after oral administration. B, it produces a shift to the left of the carbon dioxide ventilatory response curve. C, rebound drowsiness is caused by a metabolite. D, the degree of CNS depression is independent of serum albumin concentration. E, the extent of amnesia is proportional to the degree of sedation. Yeah, so I think that's a challenging one. Um, we did talk about the metabolites, so rebound drowsiness kind of makes sense. I think um, the uh, absorption, you might be thinking that absorption should be more predictable after IM than oral, um, but it turns out that actually has very predictable oral um, bioavailability. Yeah, it's funny because I would think the other. I would think that IM would be less predictable more because you think it's in the muscle. Maybe put some sub-Q. Mm, interesting. And like are you near a vessel? Are you not near a vessel? How quickly is it going to be mm. like the uptake? But uh, yeah, so it is the rebound drowsiness caused by a metabolite. And again, really what they're getting at is they want you to know that diazepam is of the benzodiazepines, the one with active metabolites. Right. Okay. Which of the following drugs is not directly conjugated to glucuronic acid? And this is – a really hard one, and I wouldn't have known this otherwise, but temazepam for A, B is oxazepam, C is lorazepam, and D is diazepam. Right. So which of the following drugs is not directly conjugated to glucuronic acid? Right, and, and so as, as you said, diazepam, but I would right. not, also not have right. known that. So the like mnemonic the that they said is LOT, so the L, lorazepam, oxazepam, temazepam, those are all conjugated to glucuronic acid, and I remember lorazepam log for the G part, so if you put log and LOT, maybe you'll get it. Hopefully you won't see a question like this, yeah. but <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> pretty nitpicky, right? Yeah, like, have you even nitpicky. heard of the other ones? Um, so the plasma half-time of which of the following drugs is prolonged in patients with end-stage cirrhotic liver disease? A, diazepam, B, pancuronium, C, alfentanyl, D, all are prolonged. Um, and they all should be prolonged. Yeah, they are. And they're just getting at, again, with the diazepam in the liver. Right. Okay. Uh, 78-year-old woman with a history of reactive airway de- disease is taking cimetidine, 400 milligrams at night. An additional dose is given IV 30 minutes before induction of anesthesia for an exploratory laparotomy. Possible side effects associated with this drug include all of the following except A, bradycardia, B, delayed awakening, C, confusion, D, increased metabolism of diazepam. Right. And so it should decrease, it's, not right. increase the exactly. metabolism. It's one of those drugs that can shut down metabolism in the liver. So the third key point for benzodiazepines is that they decrease CMRO2 and cerebral blood flow, so like propofol and barbiturates. But unlike propofol and barbiturates, midazolam is unable to produce birth suppression on EEG. So cerebral blood flow is decreased by each of the following except A, atomidate, B, midazolam, C, nitrous oxide, D, increased minute ventilation, E, positive, and expiratory pressure. Right. So nitrous oxide actually increases cerebral blood flow. Right. So it's in that list, and you're going to get lists like this. It's a very common test question. Which of the following does not increase? Which of the following 
does increase. So it's right. nice to kind of put them in boxes and know what what they do there. And know the exceptions, right? So exactly. That's, it's nice yeah. to know nitrous is the one that, right. that does the opposite. Yeah. And the drug, so there's another sample question. The drug that causes dose-dependent EEG evidence of both central nervous excitation and depression is A, lidocaine, B, halothane, C, thiopensil, D, nitrous oxide, E, midazolam. So uh, lidocaine. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I only picked this question is to show that midazolam is a really common distractor. Like when I go to Anesthesia Hub and I query the question bank and I type in midazolam, you get so many questions. But most of them is it's just listed in the drugs. Right. Right. As like, oh, I'm not sure. So I'm going to pick midazolam. So it's a, a very common distracted answer. Uh, so the next key point is that benzos do produce dose-dependent respiratory depression. It's fairly insignificant in healthy patients unless you give a lot, but is enhanced in patients with chronic respiratory disease and synergistic depressant effects of, with co-administered with other benzos or opioids. So once you start adding like fentanyl on or other medications, it gets worse. Right. So then the other big question, the other key point is actually fumazenil. Lots of questions about fumazenil. It's a specific antagonist for benzodiazepines. It's a competitive antagonist, and it's rapidly metabolized in the liver. Recurrence of the central effects of benzodiazepines may occur after a single dose of fumazenil because of the residual effects of the more slowly eliminated agonist drug. So you may need to give repeated doses are flumazenil, and they also suggest doing a continuous infusion. So what the board really wants you to know is that flumazenil is shorter acting than any benzodiazepine we give. So if you give it, you still have to watch that patient carefully because they might fall back asleep. So which of the following statements concerning flumazenil is true? A, hepatic clearance is low. B, it binds irreversibly with the benzodiazepine receptor. C, it causes hypertension and tachycardia. D, it has a shorter duration of action than midazolam. E, it reverses opioid-induced respiratory depression. And as you said, it's shorter than any of the benzos that we routinely give, so D makes sense. Right. And hepatic clearance is high. It binds reversibly. It's not irreversibly with the benzodiazepine receptor. It does not cause hypertension and tachycardia, so just to go through those. So which of the following drugs has the shortest elimination half-life? A, diazepam. B, flumazenil, C, flumazepam, D, lorazepam, E, midazolam. Right, so flumazenil. Yeah. <laughs> I love that question because they flumazepam. took flumazenil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, like, that's actually a very like clever answer choice, flumazepam. Yeah, if you're but, not careful. Exactly, yeah. if you're not careful. So it's flumazenil. Uh, 55-kilo, 70-year-old woman with mild chronic renal failure is unresponsive 20 hours after an uneventful coronary artery bypass grafting procedure. Anesthetic drugs include fentanyl, 3,000 micrograms, diazepam, 35 milligrams, and pancuronium, 20 milligrams. Which of the following is the most appropriate next? step in management. I didn't write this question, just saying. A, administration of edrophonium. B, administration of flumazenil. C, administration of naloxone. D, CT scan of the head. E, measurement of core body temperature. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, we know that in general, that's both a lot of fentanyl and a lot of yeah, right. Uh, right. and a lot of diazepam, but probably more significantly a lot of diazepam with active metabolites. So probably right. thinking about flumazenil, though, you know, you want to be very careful with flumazenil to make sure you're not giving it in someone who's chronically on benzos um, because it can precipitate seizures in those people. And you may need a drip. I mean, that's a lot of uh, benzo, but it is hard because you might, it is a lot of fentanyl also, and you do want to measure core body temperature and do these other things, but I could see where they're getting at. Right. 
And then the other thing I want to throw out there is that benzodiazepines, like I talked about, are really just commonly listed with other drugs as a distractor answer. So here's an example of that. A patient being mechanically ventilated in the ICU requires wound debridement twice daily. Each of the following agents would be appropriate for induction of brief general anesthesia except, and I want to say that we have used this question before, so it is a little bit of a review, A, nitrous oxide, B, atomidate, C, ketamine, D, methohexadol, E, midazolam. Right, so you definitely do not want to use atomidate repeatedly uh, due to its um, yeah. suppression of the adrenal right. uh, axis. So you're going to see midazolam come up time and time again. So just to review the diazepams, diaz- oh, sorry, the benzodiazepines. Uh, diazepam has active metabolites. Cimetidine slows down its metabolism, even, so it acts even longer, has a prolonged half-life and liver failure. Lorazepam undergoes glucuronidation, so it's unique in that. Flumazenil has the shortest half-life and need, probably needs to be redosed. The pediatric dosing is 0.5 milligrams kilogram PO up to a max amount. And then benzodiazepines decrease CMRO2 and Cerebobulfa. Awesome. It's a great review. Um, Thank you, Jillian. And now is that fun time in our program where we make random recommendations. Um, I'll start by saying we've got a couple of of really great uh, listener recommendations. So one of our prior residents and, in fact, chief residents, uh, Dr. Kia Seji, uh, recommended oh. the podcast called How I Built This. It's produced by NPR, and the host's name is Guy Raz. Uh, and it's really interesting. I listened to one. Uh, it's What he does is he interviews entrepreneurs who have started some of the biggest companies in the country. Um, and he talks to them about how they came about to, uh, to develop their company and about them personally. Uh, really interesting. I listened to the one about the founders of Headspace, since it's an app that I've been using uh, for meditation. And I really like it. It was really, really interesting to hear the origin story of that company. And I definitely intend on listening to more. So thank you, Kia, for that great recommendation. And then also uh, had a great recommendation from another listener named Amar Seti, who actually graduated from Hopkins, uh, listens to the podcast. And he said he recommends an economics podcast uh, called uh, Planet Money. However, there was one specific episode he recommended that he thought was really interesting for anesthesiologists and any scientists or others. Uh, it is about – the episode is called Snake Bite, And I did listen, and I agree with him. It was really interesting. Uh, I don't want to ruin it, but it is about a physician um, researcher uh, at UCSF who really goes intently after trying to figure out how to make – snake bite reversal a reality for more people um, and i won't say more than that but really interesting to uh, check out so you can go to planet money and look for the snake bite episode all right uh, those are our listener random recommendations and we're really fun so remember just send them on in you can tweet them at us at jay walpaw or at akrak podcast you can email them to akrak at akrak.com or you can tell us on the facebook group any way you want to get them to us, we will give some shout-outs on the air. So, Jillian, do you have something to match those great listener recommendations? Uh, maybe. It's actually my current music that I'm listening to. It's actually a band. They're called Vampire Weekend. They formed in New York City in, like, 06 or right when I was an intern, and they were, like, this, you know, playing local gigs and clubs and 
I remember going to a couple shows and thinking they were amazing, and I've just actually been listening, hearing them on the radio, and I think they just got nominated for a Grammy Award. They're a phenomenal band. So if you like music, you're looking for something a little different, a little unique, Vampire Weekend is Very my cool. recommendation. Vampire Weekend. Sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> and I will say uh, that my random recommendation is going to be for an app that is called uh, 1SE. That's one second every day. And uh, actually, one of our applicants uh, hinted me onto this, uh, and I didn't ask her specifically if I could put her name out there, so I won't. I'll just say it's great. Uh, and uh, it is a, kind of a journaling app. And what you can do is take a one-second picture or a little video clip every day, and then at the end of a year, you have essentially a you know 365-second uh, video uh, that gives you one second of every day of your year. Um, so it's it's really fun. I haven't, of course, gotten that far with it yet, so I haven't seen a video of my year. But I am <laughs> taking a little picture or mini video every day, and I'm looking forward to it. There's also that – there was that other journaling recommendation where you write one sentence every day for five years. So January 1st, 2010, and then next year you do it, and you do it for five years. So, of course, in five years you have these, like, one little liners. I also thought brilliant. that was super cool. <laughs> I just know there is no way I would be able to do that. <laughs> but, yes, you would have – you could look back five years later and see what you did on each right. January. January 5th, each January yeah. 6th. And I just said my would be so boring. Woke up, went to work, came right. home, went to soccer practice. <laughs> but I thought that was really fun too. Um, I will say I feel like this is the year of journaling. I don't think in any other past year we've had any applicants list journaling as one of their hobbies. And this year yes, there been a are number, a ton. A fair yeah. number, right. So it must be a trend. Maybe the yeah. more and more people are doing journaling. I and, love uh, it. And brewing kombucha. So I get that. That's happened in past <laughs> like, years though. But it's still hot. Like it's crazy. It like, is a lot of like people. Like you didn't see it and then bam. Yep. And, Last few years. Yeah. yeah. Kombucha has made its appearance for a couple years and journaling. This is the year of journaling. Anyway, lots of super fun stuff. Jillian, thank you so You're much welcome. for coming back on the show. All right. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com or Twitter, as I said, Facebook. So many fun ways to get a hold of us. And uh, we'll be back with another keyword episode uh, soon. If you are a fan of the show, uh, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. We really appreciate it. If you would like to make a one-time donation or donation anytime you want, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you, big, big thank you to Kimia Cash Cooley for the amazing work she's doing as the ACRAC intern. Thank you to Dr. Brian Park for the uh, outlines he's done for some of the shows. And thank you, of course, to Dr. Dennis Quo for creating the original ACRAC music. All right, that is going to be it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.